This podcast is brought to you by DNA Ticks, the genetic ecosystem. The genetics industry is coming to the blockchain. For the first time ever, users can test, store, and transfer their DNA safely and anonymously. DNA Ticks is transforming the way we map, store, and use DNA. The DNA Ticks token sale has just begun. Register now to get early access to the new genetics ecosystem. DNAtix.com. Welcome to Almost Here, Round the Corner of Future Technology podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies poised to transform our lives for better or worse are the focus of this podcast. Almost Here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used or just around the corner from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. This podcast is brought to you by DNAtix the genetic ecosystem. The genetics industry is coming to the blockchain. For the first time ever, users can test, store, and transfer their DNA safely and anonymously. DNAtix is transforming the way we map, store, and use DNA. The DNAtix token sale has just begun. Register now to get early access to the new genetics ecosystem. DNAtix.com. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech Podcast. My guest today is George Church. Uh, he's an American geneticist, molecular engineer, and a chemist, and uh, he's the Robert Winthrop Professor of Genetics at the Harvard Medical School, and Professor of Health Sciences and Technology at Harvard and MIT. His background is so extensive and so amazing and so varied that uh, to go into it and to express it all would probably take about five minutes, so um, we'll cut it short at that, but a uh, very distinguished guest. Very glad to have you. George, how are you doing today? Uh, it's great to be here. Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much. So, um, again, because you've been involved in starting so many companies and doing so many things, I wanted to open it up to you, and um, I wanted to ask you about some of your recent activities. What What are you working on that's fascinating you most, that's interesting you most? You know, I want to make this, again, about uh, what you want to talk about since the time here is short. Yeah, I mean, well, so uh, a few things that I'm very excited about are, are now spun off as, as baby uh, new co's, new companies, uh, uh, including uh, New Genesis for uh, trans- solving transplantation problem, Rejuvenate Bio for um, uh, getting aging reversal in dogs and then and humans, and uh, you know Grow Bio for using non-standard amino acids, and the, and the list goes on. It's quite uh, quite a lot of fun. But then if you ask, you know, what I'm working on now, that that uh, I'm working on all those, uh, helping all those uh, efforts, plus uh, what's going on in my lab, some of which is a lot um, edgier, probably not that far from uh, similar startups, but um, things having to do with uh, multivirus resistance and making a, a genome project right, we call it, for making human cells that are resistant to all viruses. It reflects what 64 minus X is doing for uh, for microbial species. Um, well, let's start with, you know, with the last thing you mentioned. Why would you want to, well, I mean, not why, but uh, how would you engineer human cells so they're resistant to all viruses? What, you know, what inspired that project and what are some of the mechanisms you found that look promising? Well, it was inspired by doing it for industrial microorganisms and then, and then the re- realization that, that a fair number of uh, industrial biotech processes involve uh, t- uh, mammalian tissue culture cells, 
then you have uh, you want those also to be virus resistant. You don't want to get contamination in your or any potential contamination. And a lot of uh, the paranoia, a lot of the paranoia of the, of the FDA it has justified is the uh, potential animal sources and say animal serum or animal cells of uh, uh, viral particles that are poorly characterized. Um, and so what we what we really want is is, uh, is a nice clean cell line that, that has, has no endogenous viruses and is resistant to all exogenous viruses. Um, Genzyme, for example, was contaminated for about two years, serious problem on both sides of the Atlantic uh, with a vesivirus. So anyway, so that's one motivation. The second motivation is for transplants. If you want to have transplants, again, you want to get rid of the endogenous and pre- uh, viruses and prevent the, the cells from getting viral infections. But it, it's you very said, exciting uh, because it allows us. Yeah, go ahead. You said endogenous viruses. I mean, you know, my my language may not be that. But it's exogenous is outside of the organism, and endogenous is intrinsic to the organism. So does that mean there um, certain of these cells have intrinsic viruses to them? Is that what that means? That's right. Most uh, most mammals ha- have in their genomes endogenous viruses, and it's. Uh, it's one of the concerns that we had in uh, transplanting organs from pigs to humans is that those that, that every every pig cell and every pig in the world is producing these things. So if an organ goes into immune suppressed human patient recipient, um, then they could conceivably act as an incubator where the virus could evolve into a zoonotic disease like swine flu or HIV. So um, so one of the first things we did was to eliminate all the uh, endogenous retroviruses that could conceivably uh, cause trouble later on. Um, it's odd. I've never heard of such a thing. So pigs, for instance, have viruses that, so part of their genetics themselves express viruses as the cells in their body replicate. And these viruses, that's right. That's right. They hang out with the cells and they don't cause any problems. Yeah, they don't cause, well, they, they do hop around, uh, so they hop around within a, 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 the genome of the pig, um, and they probably do cause some problems, uh, uh, you know, potential misregulation of genes and cancer and, and so forth. Uh, so uh, they, but, but you see that kind of hopping around uh, occurring in almost all mammalian species. Uh, yeah, it, is, it really isn't well, huh. it, it it isn't that well known by the public, but it is certainly known by the FDA, and it's one of the reasons they rejected uh, uh, transplantation of this sort uh, 20 years ago. But now they're they're quite excited that we have a solution for it. So um, um, that's crazy. How do you so you, what over millions of years um, viruses somehow became integrated with various animals' DNA and our DNA, and then they're expressed each time an organism is is born and lives. Yeah, it's replicated in your genome. They're inserted in your genome. There's there's similar things that happen in bacteria. There, there's uh, uh, you know they're either called latent viruses or uh, lysogenic viruses in bacteria, and they 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 are you know they're like any other gene. They're replicated like any other gene, but they can be activated, and typically some of them are uh, routinely expressed, as, as is the case for the pig endogenous retroviruses. And people have these same kind of, well, not the same viruses, but people have their own set of viruses? That they're called human endogenous retroviruses or herbs, yeah. Huh. yeah. Have you seen that they have any beneficial purpose, or is it always negative purpose, so, or it's mixture? No, they, they are potentially uh, 
maybe not the whole virus hopping around. That's no proven uh, advantage. Uh, there's some evidence that the envelope gene, one of the genes in the virus, um, so, uh, um, might be advantageous for some of the early stages in development, like extra embryonic membranes during placental formation. Um, and so when we knocked out the the viral uh, functionality in pig genome, we carefully avoided knocking out the envelope proteins and the and the promoters, which also have been shown to be valuable, um, and just knocked out the polymerase gene, which is required for for the uh, replication and and moving around in the genome, which is probably a little too random to be um, just left. Let, let let that happen. So you had to do this um, at the stage before the pig was born, or were you able to do it um, with the gene therapy? Well, we do this in pig was, you know. um, neither really. We we do this uh, in the germline of the pigs, uh, so that every so that once you knock them out in the germline, you never have to do it again. So it, from that point on, that you you just happen to have a pig strain that is the only pig on the planet that has knocked out all of the dozens of uh, gene, uh, retroviral um, polymerase genes. So okay. it's very simple. Once you knock it out, it's very simple to, to use it from then on. Um, but it was very um, uncertain when we started out what, how hard it would be to knock out, in our first experiment, 62 different genes at once. Because prior to that, the, the record was two genes at once. Uh, that we had done, and it just seemed like going from two to 62 could be uh, quite challenging, but it turned out it was much easier than it looked, and we have now repeated that a few times, that experiment a few times. We have uh, full, fully grown pigs uh, that are, are are knocked out in all all of their viruses. And they look phenotypically normal, they run around and they do their thing, and they... Yeah, they, they, look, they look like regular pigs, so, and, huh. yeah. So now that you've been able to do that, what's What's going to be the next step in that work? You're going to you want to look at transplants. That well, yeah. Rejected? So now we now there's a there's another few dozen changes we have to make that we have made that that uh, need to be integrated and tested in um, in primates, non-human primates, and then then we'll do uh, um, phase one, two, and three clinical trials for humans. And what's the end goal for people? Just to allow people to be born that won't have any of these latent viruses in them. No, no, no. The for for the the pig, the pigs are for transplanting organs, uh, heart, lung, liver, kidney, all the things that normally you would get from another person. But there's a there's a there's a crisis of organ donors. They have to die in a particular way, and it's just not that many people are dying in that way uh, because of better safety and uh, features worldwide. Um, and, and also, there there never really were enough people even even um, before we had better motorcycle helmets. And so um, um, many people were not, many people that could have benefited from organ transplants were not. So this is all about organ transplants, getting a, a, a ready source of very high quality uh, organs. Do certain pig organs are similar enough to people's organs that they could be transplanted possibly and they would function? Right, this, this, this was recognized by the surgical community 20 years ago. It's just that organs, Morphology was seemed right, but the molecular biology was not right, and it took about 20 years to develop a new set of technologies for genome editing that, that allowed us to change so many 
places in the genome simultaneously. You know, maybe on the order of you know, five dozen or so. Yeah, that's amazing. Well, as this works, uh, it'll be crazy that people will be able to have pig organs transplanted into them if they need. Yeah. Well, they already have pig valves that that are routinely transplanted, but they are not alive. They're 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 dead. They're kind of like leather rather than. But these organs would be fully vascularized, very complicated organs like you know, kidneys with all the the, the detailed uh, glomeruli and and uh, ducts and uh, um, and so forth. So um, yeah, so so we have there is some precedent, but but we need to get all uh, essentially all of the organs made uh, compatible. Okay, well, that's amazing. Um, I guess you know, amazing topic number two. Uh, you spoke about anti-aging in dogs. What what kind of work are you doing there? Yeah, so that's uh, so we've been working in the lab uh, ever since Pedro de Magalas was a postdoctoral fellow in my lab uh, uh, a decade ago, uh, and uh, we're working on every way that you can address the problem. So uh, sequencing exceptional animals that live a long time, like bowhead whale and um, naked mole rat. Uh, sequence the DNA and RNA from those organisms, and also studying uh, people that live a long time, super centenarians that live over 110 years, but mostly studying the the, the classic literature of cell biology and, and um, aging and model organisms, and seeing how we can turn those observations into gene therapies. So gene therapy is not uh, classically the, the approach that people take to aging. It's mostly small molecule drugs, but gene therapy is very powerful. It's a one-use one use thing. Uh, and so we've been looking at, 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 at the best examples of either longevity or aging reversal in model organisms like worms and flies and mice, and then turning them into AAV, adeno-associated virus-based gene therapies. Um, for the reversal, the, the youthful reversal of uh, diseases of aging like um, uh, obesity, type, di- type 2 diabetes, osteoarthritis, um, heart and kidney uh, damage, and all of these uh, can be addressed by a relatively small number of uh, simultaneous gene therapies. Oh, so the goal would be to do a gene therapy that reverses a number of conditions that you know an aged person, let's say, has eventually? To bring them back That's to right. Yes. Yeah. So, so that these are these are diseases that rarely kill a, a young person or a young mouse in this case, um, but they do kill old mice. Um, and so then the idea is to reverse that process at least enough so that um, now that you can uh, cure these diseases, it, you don't want to try to get FDA approval on a longevity drug because it, it takes much longer to do the clinical trials. You want something that that uses the lessons of longevity research to, to get the kind of reversal of a, of a serious disease. Well, what are some of the mechanisms uh, you've identified that gene therapy would, would help to fix that, you know, that cause aging? Yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it's not so much that, that we identify them. We just turn them into gene therapies. Uh, there, there are about nine or ten categories of pathways involve things like mitochondrial function, um, telomere function, uh, clearing of senescent cells, uh, uh, hormone-like activities that, that spread through the blood, uh, et cetera, and, you know, about nine or ten of them. And uh, 
and we just looked for the ones that that seemed most compatible with the current generation of of uh, delivery mechanisms like adeno-associated virus, um, which is a gene therapy vector, um, which is not particular was not adequate is really adequately efficient. Uh, so we had to take that into account in, in the in the prioritization of uh, gene therapies. And we also tried combin combinations, which is something that hasn't been tried. Uh, much in the past, the gene therapies tried various combinations, um, and we have a paper that's uh, submitted. Uh, it's in the middle middle of peer review right now, so there'll be a lot more of that uh, soon. Well, for the for the layperson, what what's an example of a gene therapy, and how does it work? You know, mechanistically. Well, so the classic gene therapies uh, are aimed at diseases of uh, that you're born with, so so that, you know um, where you might. Uh, want to, uh, you're missing uh, an enzyme in your body, and at a fairly early age, you need to get treated so that you either add that enzyme as a protein or you add the gene that encodes that protein to, to replace the, the missing protein. And the advantage of adding the gene is that it will continue to make that protein for the rest of your life. And so, in principle, you can be treated once. Well, if you add the protein, you have to constantly add, you constantly inject the protein. Um, that's been that you were born without, and so that's uh, you're kind of addicted to that drug for life rather than fixing it once and for all, which is what gene therapy um, purports to do. And so they're 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 a, a small-ish number of gene therapies um, that are uh, getting approved. There are thousands that are in uh, that, that have been approved for clinical trials, but there are a few that have made it th uh, through. Um, to the point of uh, uh, full FDA approval. Well, okay, so but for aging, it seems like, unless I'm mistaken, these are natural processes that I guess go awry or you know or, or have problems because of associated uh, you know debris or you know certain things that accumulate in the body, like you said, senescent cells. So how would gene therapy be different uh, to accomplish anti-aging? Yeah, well, I mean, it, with, with all diseases, whether they're genetically inherited or whether they are a uh, process of, of uh, developmental epigenetic events, uh, they are they often have a, a, a way to reverse them. You can either add the gene that's missing or add back the gene that's that goes down with time as you age. So even if it's a semi-natural process where um, um, as you get older, you're 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 lacking these uh, enzymes. It's really very similar to you're born without the enzymes because of a genetic uh, problem. So in in both cases, you just add the gene that makes that enzyme back in, you know, so that okay. it, it replaces it replaces what's missing. So some of what happens in aging is that our genes will stop expressing in a certain way where we won't make as much of an enzyme as we need or any of an enzyme anymore, for instance. So you can turn that back on with uh, gene therapy. Is that an example? Yeah, that's right. So for example, uh, in, uh, in mitochondria, which is the powerhouse of the cell, they, they uh, with age, both mice and human NAD levels drop. And so you can either replace the NAD or precursors directly, such as which is the base, which is uh, um, sometimes called NR or, or nicotinamide riboside, or you can play with the genes to pop 
pop them their activity back up either epigenetically or genetically you can put in extra copies of the genes that that are down uh in aging and then have them uh increase the pathway to making more nad and hence better mitochondrial function okay i didn't realize you could do that um if if you introduce a gene therapy into a person let's say they're you know they're older they're uh, 70 years old and you introduce a therapy might it shock the system if there's a sudden turn on of the production of an enzyme um, because the the person's body has progressed to a certain point for so long will these therapies be like uh, tremendously disruptive or would they just be like a, a gradual uh, improvement in the person's health well so this is this is uh totally within the realm uh, totally within the uh, capabilities of the of the physicians they can, it's just like with any drug, you can give a, a low dose or a high dose or uh, ramp it up or ramp it down. Um, it, it's a, the same things are possible with gene therapy. Um, probably there are relatively few cases where you uh, um, need that level of finesse, but you certainly have that capability. Um, a more significant uh, thing happens. So, so when you when you're old, you're just you're slightly low in a in a g- gene, and you just slightly increase it. So it's kind of a subtle loss and a subtle response. But when you have a ch- a child that's born without with without any copies of a particular essential protein, meaning it's missing its copy from its mother and its father, uh, then you then when you do give the therapy, that it's a, it's a jump from zero to you know, full function, and that's a much uh, bigger deal, mainly because your body has an immune system that's constantly looking for foreign proteins. In this particular case, since you had zero to start out with, it recognizes the incoming uh, protein as foreign. Now, even that's not a showstopper, um, but but it, but it's it's more of a big deal than than um, than gene than gene therapy or aging, where you've got something a protein that's gone down a little, and you just boost it up a little. Um, in this case, you've gone from zero, and so your immune system recognizes it foreign. Okay, all right, I understand. Um, so, turning back to your, you know, and looking at all the research you're doing right now and supervising, what is really like amazing you or delighting you right now? You know, one or two things that you're maybe you're super excited about, you know, whether you can reveal them or not. What are you seeing that's like you can't believe it that's happening right now? Well, I think um, it's a it's a remarkable time for. Um, reading and writing and editing DNA, in particular, the reading part. I think, you know, the writing and editing gets a lot of attention, but you can't can't typically write or edit without being able to read. And it's really undergoing a revolution where we can now have, you know, pocket-sized wearable technology for, for reading our environment, um, you know, being able to sequence uh, the pathogens uh, or allergens around us and determine whether the pathogens are drug-resistant so you can you can start making um, it much more educated um, uh, responses to your environment, either avoiding the environment or or, or preparing yourself. Um, also, we, we are, we're at the point where um, there's a lot of human genetics that works really well. Uh, I mean, there seems to generally be this emphasis on all the things we don't know, but there's a lot of things we do know, and now the price of sequencing is almost almost free. In fact, it probably will be free or better soon, um, thanks to Nebula Genomics, one of my uh, uh, recent startups, because 
the amount of money that society saves uh, by avoiding people with severe Mendelian uh, diseases um, more than, you know, 20 times more than the cost of getting everybody their genome. So you could have uh, universal access to your genome if you want it. Um, and you don't have to read it. You, you can have software that, that, that uh, does uh, whatever you want it to do. It stays in your possession. I'm very excited about the possibility of, of being able to ask questions of your genome, only the questions you want to ask because the genome is entirely in your control. Um, and so you can use it, for example, to avoid um, getting any severe Mendelian diseases in your family. So this combination of portable reading and, uh, you know, completely private uh, uh, and useful um, personal genomes, I think is finally arriving um, and people will, um, and so we, we you know, will continue to make discoveries uh, at probably at a greatly accelerated rate once everybody starts getting their whole genome sequenced. And, and some people will choose to share it in a secure way uh, with geneticists around the world. Well, right now uh, with the current state of the art, is it pretty easy and inexpensive to get, you know, your genome sequenced? And what would you do with it today if you uh, if you got it sequenced? Yeah, so it's dropped. We've dropped. We've we my group and others have dropped the price from three billion dollars to for for sort of half a genome um, to now six hundred dollars for a diploid genome, meaning both your mother and your father's contribution. So it's about ten million fold improvement. Um, I think I think it's generally a misunderstanding about what you would get from it. Uh, there's kind of two camps, both of which are wrong. Uh, what's, uh, one says that oh, it's going to be so exciting, you're just going to look at it several times a day, and it's going to keep them, you know, you keep learning stuff. And then there's the other camp that says no, it's all in the future. We don't know anything. And the reality is uh, neither of those. Um, and it's not even in between those two, it, it is that 95% of us will learn very little actionable, but 5% of it will be so impactful and so actionable that, um, you know, we're talking about millions of dollars in, in, in devastatingly deleterious diseases that are highly predictable. And so, it, so, so what we have is this curious uh, situation, which is like seatbelts and airbags where, um, you know, for a while, we everybody had cars with seatbelts, and they would just sit on them. They wouldn't buckle them. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, you had to think of various ways to motivate people to, to do something that where 90, 99% of us would make it all the way through our lives without ever, ha ever needing seatbelts. I've never needed them, never been in an accident that would require seatbelts or airbags. But nevertheless, we should all have them because the 1% that gets uh, into a severe accident, um, you can save a lot of pain and suffering and, and money. So it's exactly the same thing with, with Mendelian diseases. And we have the technology, we have the software um, to um, help people um, with their genome. You don't need to learn anything that you don't want to know or that, that isn't currently actionable, but, but all of these, um, Mendelian diseases, even if there's an, is not a cure for them, there is a way that you can avoid them by matchmaking or uh, other uh, genetic counseling approaches. So that, I mean, that's, to me, that's a very exciting moment that, that really everybody um, 
certainly everybody of reproductive age, you know, say between 16 and 60, um, should know their should know their their genome and uh, and yeah, use it to influence um, that kind of decision. So, what can you know right now? If you get, you know, if I get my genome sequenced tomorrow, what what can I find out? So, there's 7,000 diseases that are highly deleterious and predictable predictable enough that you would want to avoid having them by make by uh, probably the easiest thing to do if you're not uh, already married is uh, matchmaking where you just have a list of people who are compatible with you which is not that different from uh, it's not you know you might have five percent of the people subtracted from the list because the five percent of births right now are very severe genetic diseases so um, so your list would not change tremendously, um, but it would it would you would avoid having a child bringing a child in the world with a severe uh, disease, which, you know, um, that could could easily cost a lot of money as well. So to me, sure. that's the main thing that you, you would do with your genome, and that only that's only going to affect five percent of uh, either um, choices of who you would uh, have children with uh, or would. Or if you do nothing, it will affect five percent of birth. What about uh, personally? You know, what what can you find out about your own self? That uh, and what can you do about it at this point? But I mean, are you talking about George Church personally, or are you talking about people personally in general? No, no. I mean, you know, like like you know, uh, someone right now, not you personally, but someone right now, they get so, their so someone sequenced. right now, someone someone yeah. right now that got their genome sequenced that uh, is getting ready to date. Uh, even if they're not planning on marrying and having children, there is a chance they will have children. And so they might as well date from the list of people that they're compatible with. Um, so you don't, have to, you don't have to know whether you're a carrier or not. You don't need to know whether anybody else is a carrier. You just make a list of people you're compatible with. And it, and it could be you're compatible with everybody, but you've got your list and you go out and you do it. So that's totally actionable today. It has very little consequences of false positives, which which could be, could be a big deal if you're talking about a surgery or something. But here you're just talking about having a date. Um, so that's something totally actionable right now for many people. Right. But what about, um, you know, like, let's say, you know, I'm married already. I have kids and I'm curious, you know, what might happen to me in the future? Now, let's say I'm 40 okay. years old. So and I yeah, get my so genes. What could I do? If you're, do? if you're done having children, well, first of all, you never n quite know when you're done having children uh, unless you had a vasectomy <laughs> or something. Um, True. But, but, but let's say you are, for all intents and purposes, then there are a small number, smaller number, so there might be 5% that are actionable to, by carrier screening that we've been talking about. But then there's another percent or so. Uh, that are adult onset diseases which are actionable. They might be they might be cancers that you can avoid by having surgery preventatively, or there are a uh, few cardiovascular diseases you can have with uh, the right drugs. So again, it's it's only a percent or two, and some people will say, "Well, I feel lucky," but the point is why. You know, if if the if the procedure is almost free and you don't need to learn anything that's not actionable, you know, why not? Uh, Buckle up for safety. So there, are, so those there are a few, few there are a few such. Uh, again, you uh, most people won't want to know all the stuff that's uh, not currently actionable. So you just focus on the the, the one or two percent that is actionable. Well, what's uh, yeah? So here's another like uh, far-ranging question. 
So, you know, I get, I see you as like looking over a landscape of all these projects you have. What do you see is going to be possible in the next, you know, five years commercially available, uh, maybe 10 years uh, that you think will be really beneficial for people? Um, yeah, well, the, the, your whole genome is already available. It's, it's going to be within the next year or two, probably it'll be close to zero dollars um, or they'll pay you for it. Um, I think the knowing about your environment will take a little bit longer. Uh, there's some that you can do already, but I think making it so it's routine that everybody, you know, maybe has something on their, their phone that is monitoring their environment. That's going to take a little while, but that would be uh, a whole new capability in terms of epidemiology, preventative medicine, um, you know, knowing what therapies will be effective or not, knowing what uh, rooms not to walk into because of your particular um, immune status, allergy status, and so forth. So I think that that's coming uh, uh, very soon. And these are very cost-effective um, I think some of the, some some uh, technologies are um, so inexpensive that they could be used um, worldwide, um, even less expensive than vaccines. The vaccines are one of the most uh, inexpensive uh, and effective technologies we've ever had. We've essentially eliminated smallpox and almost polio and guinea worm and so forth uh, with preventative strategies um, among the vaccines, but possibly even less uh, expensive and more effective uh, um, uh, would be gene drives, which you can uh, um, spread through a, if you have a an animal that uh, is a vector for disease that carries the disease, um, then you can work on uh, engineering that animal in the wild. So nothing is, nothing is affected in the animal other than their inability, the engineering of their inability to spread the disease. So that's something we need to think about very carefully. It has uh, a great deal of, uh, of, of public health implication, and uh, if done properly, uh, very little side effects. What um, beneficial things do you hope to see? You know, maybe one or two examples, but you think are going to be it's going to be quite a while before we're able to uh, utilize them. But you you feel like they are possible, maybe in the next. 20 to 50 years? Well, most things we put our mind to, uh, we can do quite quickly. Uh, I, I, I think we've been surprised how quickly things occur. So, so like bringing down the price of uh, sequencing went from something that was nearly impossible to something that was $3 billion to something that's nearly free over a very short period of time, um, much less than people expected. Some people said it would be a century. Even Moore's Law predicted it would be 60 years. Um, so if you're, so, so it typically takes on the order of a decade to get full approval of a new uh, pharmaceutical and that's so that we have safe safety and efficacy. So, but you were talking about 20, 50 years, that would be something, um, that either we don't care about enough or we don't realize that the technology is uh, moving quickly, exponentially, or something, uh, where, uh, the need is just now developing. So, for example, space exploration might be something where we'd want to uh, have a whole new set of biological capabilities um, to keep the cells from getting sick from radiation or um, um, low gravity um, or various microbial or, or neuropsychiatric challenges that are unique to that um, new set of uh, 
of environments. So that that strikes me as sort of in the 20 to 50 year range. Um, not so much because the biotechnology is hard to develop, but because uh, the, the 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 need for the environments and the and the complementary technologies that you need might be that far off. Okay. Well, very good. I mean, it has been a great conversation. You know, I appreciate you coming, and um, I don't know if you you probably don't need or want any additional uh, attention, but uh, you know, for people that are listening that want to learn more about the various projects you're involved in, what's a good resource for them? Um, uh, well, so a book that was uh, intended to anticipate some of the work that we would be doing called Regenesis was, was the, the only book that I've written, um, and it's still it has it, it's still quite relevant. Um, there's a more uh, playful book that uh, recently came out that I contributed to, written by Ben Mesrick, called Woolly, that describes uh, um, uh, you know e- ecosystem engineering and uh, and uh, de-extinction of genes uh, to help improve the diversity and adaptability of a uh, to, uh, of a charismatic uh, elephant. Uh, a member of the elephant family. Um, yeah, those would be two examples. Okay, that's great. Okay, George, it's amazing all the stuff that you do, and obviously you're you're someone that uh, thinks, okay, let's just do it. Otherwise, you wouldn't do all these amazing projects. So I'm glad that you're you and you do all these things, and uh, I appreciate you being on the podcast. Yeah, thank you. It's been a good, a pleasant conversation. Take care. You've been listening to Almost Here, Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, both to review, to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more.